Turn in your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 46. Luke chapter 9, uh, 40, verse 46. Uh, I'm going to read uh, 46 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to pray, and then we will dive into God's Word. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name when we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you now. You are so great and glorious and mighty and holy, God. Father, you are our rock and our fortress. You are our stronghold. And whom shall we fear? God, we thank you for your power and your majesty. And God, often when we enter into your presence, Lord, God, we are reminded of our failures this past week. We are reminded of how we have sinned against you, whether in word or in deed. God, I pray, Lord, uh, for the people here in my own heart as we come before you, that we just trust uh, in the forgiveness that has been purchased for us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Father, we have been fully and freely forgiven through the blood of Christ, and we have been wrapped with the robes of righteousness that Christ wore. So God, we come to you uh, for the forgiveness of sins. We confess them to you now, asking that you would be merciful and forgive us. God, we also just uh, pray for the Green family here. God, we know it wasn't long ago where they lost both our dear brother and sister Tommy and B. God, we pray that you continue to remind them uh, of the gracious gift you gave them um, in a godly man and a godly woman. Father, I pray that you would just comfort them by your grace. Father, I pray that that they often would be reminded about their godly and righteous character. God, we thank you um, for them and what they have meant to this church. Bless that family this week, Lord. God, we also pray for uh, the gospel witness in our city. Uh, We pray specifically for Mike, Odell, and 
Mike Wallace at the York Baptist Association. God, we pray that you continue to give them wisdom and guidance as they lead uh, our association. God, we pray that you would build them up in character, in holiness, and in righteousness, God. Uh, Give them your vision for this community. And God, we also pray for uh, other churches in our area that you would uh, be fruitful there. We pray specifically this morning for uh, Joey Deese and Oakdale Baptist Church. God, we pray as Joey gets up to preach, Lord, I pray that you just fill him with the Holy Spirit of God. God, I pray that you would anoint him with your spirit as he preaches your word, that, that change would happen in your people by your grace. God, bless that congregation, we pray. God, we also pray for our own hearts this morning. God, in our own congregation, God, we have so much uh, thoughts running through our head now and so many things that we may deal with on an average week. But God, we want now to hear a word from you. God, you know what your people need to hear. So God, I pray that I may decrease and that you may increase. God, I pray that I would just be an empty vessel, that you would preach your word to your people. Rest it upon your people's hearts. God, we want you to change us from one degree of glory to the next. Transform us, God, to be like Christ, that we may be mature and complete in him. So God, we pray that you would just do a work Through your word, by the power of your spirit, we pray. We ask this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the greatest barbecue I have ever had. This is the greatest book I have ever read. That was the greatest performance by Clemson I have ever seen last night against Georgia. Amen. That was the greatest compliment I have ever received. Imagine if you could record every conversation you had over the last month and then do a search of those conversations for the word greatest. I think we would be surprised at how often the word greatest appears in our life. Now, we know our society loves to talk about the greatest, the greatest restaurants, sports, books, vacations. We love to talk about things that are the greatest. It's very interesting how passionate discussions can get when the debate is who or what is the greatest. But there is no discussion when it comes to grits. Max Phillips has the greatest grits in South Carolina. Right, Max? I agree with you. Thank you. Now, I don't think many of us would want to admit this, uh, but I believe that we enjoy these debates because deep down what these debates are proving is in our own lives why we believe that we are the greatest. We want to prove our interests, our opinions, our sports teams are the greatest because if they're the greatest, well then I must be great too for liking them or having them. We know Uh, from the Bible, that there's only one thing that is the greatest, and that is God Himself. God is the greatest. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 25, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and He is to be feared above all gods. God is above all and indeed is the greatest. The Scriptures testify to His greatness, but they also testify about us, of our inability to understand His greatness. In Genesis chapter 3, 
Eve was tempted to doubt God's greatness and to replace his greatness with her own. So we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent saying to Eve, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit in the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, Eve was tempted to doubt God's greatness with the promise that you can replace God's greatness with being great yourself. The serpent was telling Eve, like he tells all of us, that you are the greatest. It was her opinions and her interests that mattered more than the Lord. So we see in verse 6 of chapter 3, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, to make one great. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve believed a lie about their own greatness and rejected the greatness of God. Their hearts were filled with pride, and that pride brought sin into the world, brought sin into our own hearts. So we struggle each day with the welling up of our own pride, saying, we are the greatest. Beloved, the prideful sin of Adam and Eve still lives in our hearts. We must be vigilant to address pride in all its various forms. So this morning, we're going to look at four exhortations from God's Word and how we deal with the pride in our own hearts. The first three exhortations or charges I want to give to the whole congregation. And the last point of the sermon, I'm going to speak directly to Robert Deaton, uh, who's going to be ordained as a deacon this morning, as a charge to him personally. So look back in God's Word if you want to follow along uh, with the outline provided for you in the back of your bulletin. Uh, That first exhortation or charge is to the prideful self. To the prideful self, receive the least of the kingdom. Receive the least of the kingdom. In verse 46 we read, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now we read verses like these at the apostles and we start to give them a hard time. You know, who goes around debating about who is the greatest. Now, we may talk about opinions or interest or, or sports, but who goes around and saying, you know, I really am the greatest man that's ever lived? No one really does that. And if they did, you probably wouldn't want to be their friend. Now, we may give them a hard time, but if we really want to analyze our own hearts, how often do we debate about our own greatness? You see someone doing something that you disapprove of. And the greatness debate starts in your own head. For example, how could she wear white shoes after Labor Day? Doesn't she know better? I would never do that. I was talking to my wife about this this morning, and my daughter got really nervous. Uh, She goes, Daddy, uh, does that mean I have to get rid of all my white shoes? (laughs) I said, no, sweetie, that's a man-made rule. Uh, We don't always have to follow that. But there's these man-made rules that we that create in our own hearts, and we see people not doing them to our standard, and we start to battling back and forth in our head. 
And really the translation of that saying is, I'm a better dresser than she is. I know the appropriate dress and the appropriate day. Deep down, I am the greatest. We have those debates in our head all the time. So let's not be too hard on the disciples. But look what Jesus says through, or the Holy Spirit says through Luke in verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Jesus does not judge you based on your external obedience, but on the inner workings of your heart. The things that are going on in your heart this morning, right now, as you are hearing the Word of God, are seen by the Lord Jesus. We can hide nothing from Him. And Jesus hates a prideful heart. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is against the prideful, and therefore God is against the prideful thoughts and intentions of your own heart. He knows the reasonings of your heart. So in love, Jesus Christ, knowing what we deal with inside our own hearts and heads, gives us an illustration of how to fight against our prideful thoughts. He goes on in verse 47. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of our hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now in Jesus' day, children were not highly valued. They were looked at as the least of society. In the Mishnah, a record of oral rabbinical teaching, it says, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of common people assemble, destroy a man. So these rabbis actually said, if you talk and hang out with children, you would be destroying your character. Children were not taught the Torah until the age of 12. They were looked at as a nuisance. Let me just step over here for a second. Your children are not a nuisance. Children in our society are not a nuisance. But there is a a sentiment in our world where children are not received well. Let that not be you. Time in. Back to the sermon. Jesus, right here, redefines greatness. Uh, Greatness is not being known to the powerful, but in the reception of the lowly. The key phrase in this section is verse 48. Helps us understand what Jesus is saying. Greatness is found in knowing Jesus Christ when he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Receiving the least of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, that is an indicator that we will be received by Jesus Christ and therefore be received by God the Father. Our reception to the least of our society is an indicator whether we truly have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. If you do not receive children, if you do not receive those who are looked at as the least, you are maybe outside of the grace of the Lord. We do not want to be uh, looked at in the eyes of the powerful of this world, but we want to receive the lowly. 
For the least will be the greatest. For those who humble themselves, therefore they will be exalted. When I graduated college, I served at a church in Washington, D.C. in the men's ministry. There wasn't a whole lot of going on for the men. I said, I want, I want to start something for these guys. And we're in the nation's capital. So I wanted to start this Bible study with my goal to serve the well-educated, the thoughtful, the future power brokers of the free nation. Well, the Lord, knowing the reasoning of my prideful, sinful heart, wanted to teach me a lesson on how to receive the lowly. This men's Bible study was eventually filled with the homeless, with the schizophrenic, with the epileptic, the downtrodden. These men had no power, no external greatness, but they knew Jesus Christ. And they taught me that true greatness is not found in the company of the powerful. It's found in the company of the weak. So who is in your company? What is the company you keep? How do you receive the weak and the lowly? Jesus says to the prideful heart, receive the least of the kingdom. The second exhortation we see is to the prideful church. The prideful church receive the laborers of the kingdom. Receive the laborers of the kingdom. John uh, answered in verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. Now, the disciples are just slow learners. Jesus is trying to speak directly to their prideful hearts. And in trying to focus on their prideful hearts, John answers with pride. Jesus, we saw some people trying to cast out demons in your name, and we tried to stop them. Thinking that, look at how great I am. And Jesus says, don't stop them. If they're not against you, they're for you. But notice what he says. It says right there in verse um, 49. We tried to stop them because they did not follow with us. Beloved, people who are not against us and the gospel of Jesus Christ are for us. We are on the same team. There should be no competition among churches. There should be Absolutely no competition among churches. One of the reasons why I pray every week for other churches is to remind our own hearts that we do not hold the corner of truth. Jesus Christ is truth. And there are other pastors in this town who love Jesus Christ and want to make his gospel known. We say, praise God, grow their church. What if a revival, God's Holy Spirit broke a revival out in this city? And people were coming to Christ left and right. And we saw our city start to change. And churches started to grow. Every church started to grow, except our church. Would we be angry at God? Or would we say praise God for his gospel growth? The apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 118, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. When the faithful Bible-preaching churches of Jesus Christ are growing, God is pleased. 
Praise His name. We want the greatness of Jesus Christ to be magnified in this city. Whether it comes from this pulpit or other pulpits across this city, praise His name. To God be the glory. The glory does not come to Park Baptist Church. Amen? The glory goes to God. So it doesn't matter what churches grow. We want God's name to be magnified in our city. That deserves an amen. I thought so. You can amen me anytime you feel like it. It helps me. It helps me in my greatness. That was a bad joke, pun. I need to... So can I just say this to you? I love this church. I love what God is doing in this church. I am excited what God is doing. I mean, I'm not sure if you feel it, but I feel the Holy Spirit of God moving in this church. So let me say this with that background. If you have friends or family that are going to another faithful gospel preaching church, do not invite them here. Did the pastor just say not to invite people to church? If they're already going to a gospel preaching church, no. When you, when you run into people who are already going to a church, don't say, come to my church. Say, how can we pray for you and your church? Let's see your church grow for the kingdom of God. Now, there are reasons for people to leave church, whether it's a philosophy of ministry or a different theology, but it always should be done in a loving and gracious way. I try to intentionally not invite people to church when I know they go somewhere else. If I know they go to a good church, hey, praise God, how can we pray for you? That's what we should want to see. We want our church to grow, but we don't always want our church to grow only numerically, do we? We want to grow in holiness, in righteousness, in graciousness. We want to grow God's way. So before you invite people to church, Make sure you think why you are inviting them. Now I know this sounds weird, right? Trust me, don't, don't say, well, pastor says we can never invite people to church. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Listen, put on your listening ears just for a second. If they are not attending a church, invite them to church. If they do not know Jesus Christ, invite them to church. If they go to a church that does not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, invite them to church. Key word, gospel preaching. But if they go to another gospel church, pray for them. Amen? Those who are not against us are for us. The third exhortation we see to the pride, the prideful, is to the prideful world. Look with me in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans and to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because he set his face, his face was set towards Jerusalem. Verse 40, 51 is kind of a turning point in Luke's gospel when he said he set his face towards Jerusalem. What, what that means is that he is going towards the cross. Jerusalem is where he dies and where he will be raised from the dead. So when it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem, his, his life is intensifying. That's my mission. That is where I am heading. The people of Samaritan, of the Samaritan village, did not receive Jesus. And it gives us the reason why. This is because he, his face was set towards Jerusalem. The people did not want 
the message of the cross. Now, the message of the cross strikes right at the heart of the pride in our world. As I mentioned in the introduction, we all have an innate sense that we are the greatest. That's because of our sinful nature. We have been born in iniquity. Our sinful nature replaces God as king with placing the kingly crown on our own head. We believe that our desires are the most important desires in the world. The message of the cross is against sinners. Pastor Mark Dever says, A gospel that no way offends the sinner has been misunderstood. The cross should offend sinners. The cross says that your sin is so evil, is so heinous, that you deserve to die. The cross says that we, in our sin, deserve death. Now, friend, if you are here and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that all human beings have fallen short of the glory of God. We've rebelled against God's greatness, and we deserve to be punished. The the punishment for our rebellion is unquenchable fire and the weeping and gnashing of teeth in a literal, eternal place called hell. The message of the cross is that you, sinners, deserve to die. The message of the cross is you are dead in your sins and need a Savior. Now that is offensive. But it's also glorious. The text says in verse 51 and verse 53 that Jesus set His face towards Jerusalem. The good news of Jesus Christ is that while we rejected God's greatness and replaced it with our own, Jesus set His face towards Jerusalem where He would lay down His life to ransom filthy sinners to Himself through His shed blood and resurrection. The message of the cross is the most offensive and the most encouraging message of the world. In one breath it says that you are a sinner and deserve to die. And in the very next breath it says that one has already come to die in your place. Jesus died and was raised for everyone who would turn and trust in Him. Now the people of Samaria did not receive this message. For in their pride, they did not want to admit the first part. They did not want to acknowledge their sin before God. And therefore, they missed the second part, that one came to die on their behalf. Friend, can I just encourage you? Admit you are a sinner, deserving of punishment, and receive the Lord of the kingdom. And believer, this message gives you freedom to confess your sin to one another. We no longer have to stand trying to pretend that we have it all figured out. Because guess what? You don't. I don't. Nobody does. That's why we confess our sin and we receive the forgiveness that God has purchased for us in Christ Jesus. It should make a place of humility. But Luke goes on in verse 54. Follow with me. It says, 
There's an important lesson of the remaining pride in our own hearts. It says, when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. The people rejected Jesus, and then James and John said, we want to call down fire from heaven to take care of these people. They took great pride in being in the inner circle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, They accepted Jesus, so why don't others? It would be right for them to call down fire from heaven to to punish these sinners who rejected Jesus. Now, guys, I see so much of this in the southern church. We, We take so much pride in our positions as Christians is that we lose sight in how we became Christians in the first place. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man can boast. We were shown grace by God in our coming to faith. It is not of our own doing. We didn't win salvation. God did it for us. So when we encounter people who do not receive Jesus Christ, we must pray to God that God would be merciful to them, that he would open their eyes and and let their ears hear the message of the gospel just like he did to you. Because you're no different. Outside of the grace of God, you would reject Jesus too. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says to the self-righteous. Oh, you self-righteous people. How can you talk about being saved? What saving do you want? You are all, you are as full of good works as you can be, and your pride shines. How can you be saved? Those who are saved by Jesus are those who are themselves lost, ruined, and undone. Until you know your ruin and confess your sin, it is not likely you will ever accept a Savior. While you feel you can save yourself, you will attempt it. But when you can do no more, then you will fall on the arms of the Savior. And what a blessed fall it will be. Beloved, fight against your self-righteousness. Fall into the arms of the Savior. And we want to go into our prideful world, people who think that they are not sinners and do not need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to proclaim the message of repentance and forgiveness in Christ. Receive the Lord of the kingdom. The last exhortation goes as a warning to the prideful servant to receive the labor of the kingdom. Uh, Now I'm going to change to speaking to all of us, really just speaking towards Robert um, as an incoming deacon. We take uh, the ordination of of deacons uh, very serious uh, in our church. Um, Ordination is our way of setting them aside uh, so someone for unique service for the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 13, verse 2 says this, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Today we are going to set apart Robert Deaton for the work to which the Lord has called you, brother, to serve as a deacon. And I would like to give him a charge and to all of you uh, who are going to serve the Lord from the end of our, this morning's text, from Luke 9, verse 57. So read with me from verse 9, 57 to the end of the chapter. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Lord, I, I will follow you wherever I go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to, to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So in this section, what Jesus is doing, he's telling you about the cost of following Jesus. Robert, uh, there is a great cost in following Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice how often the word follow is used in this section. We see in verse 57, I will follow you wherever I go, wherever you go. In verse 59, follow me. And again in verse 61, I will follow you, Lord. See, the command of Jesus is very simple. Follow me. Follow means to come behind, uh, to be his disciple. Jesus is calling you, my dear brother, to follow him. But remember what Jesus means when he says follow him. Remember the context of what he just said. He's calling you to follow him as he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He's calling you to follow the way of the cross, the way to deny, deny yourself, the way of reproach. Now, there's a lot of people in this little section who claim that they're going to follow Jesus eventually. Look what it says in verse 59. Lord, let me first, verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first. See, Robert, you're being set apart to serve as a deacon. But the word deacon itself means to serve. You're not called to serve like these uh, people that Jesus met along the road. They all said they would follow Jesus, but they would not follow him first. The calling for all of us who are going to follow Jesus Christ is to follow Him first. The calling of all Christians, especially leaders in the church, is to serve Jesus Christ as the greatest joy of your life. You must humble yourself under His Lordship. The labor of the kingdom is a glorious task, but it will cost you. Jesus gives the great image at the end when he says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Robert, you are being asked to put your hand to the plow and to sow into the kingdom of God. Farmers would plow up the hard ground and prepare seeds for the harvest. You are called to plow up um, the hard ground of the heart with sacrificial love and service that the Word of God would reap benefits in their hearts. Farmers would plow the field in hot seasons of drought and in perpetual rain. God is calling you to labor for His glory in times of plenty and in times of want. The work of plowing was hard work, and it often cost a farmer his strength. Robert, God is calling you to work hard for His glory even at the cost of your strength. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, when we set you apart as a deacon, this is not a temporary assignment. We're assigning you a responsibility to serve and live as a deacon for good. This is a commission. 
to lifelong service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the fellowship of His church. It is a great honor to serve the Lord. So can I exhort you, my dear brother, uh, to receive the labor of the kingdom. There is no doubt, after the gross I've seen in you over this past year, that you will do an absolute tremendous job. What we do is, here at this church is that we don't uh, make people deacons. God raises men up to be deacons. It says, I want to set you aside for the, the work that the Lord has called you to. The Lord is raising you up. The Lord is growing you. They're growing you as a man, as a husband, as a father. It is a great joy and an honor for, the, for my own heart today uh, to have you be ordained as a deacon of Park Baptist Church.